0: I want to say we're wrapping up our sermon series here, we're on nurturing the spirit and spirituality. And last week's sermon was a little less dense theologically, I have to say this one is a little bit more dense, just kind of buckle your seatbelts here. We're going to be talking about how when we foster the spirit in us through prayer and action that we transform our desires to more closely align with the desires of God or in the language of Romans 12 that we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds now, I hesitate to use this language, because this idea of like, transforming our desires to become more like God's, um, because I think many of us here, and this includes me, grew up in a more like, evangelical setting where we were being taught to like, tamp down our desires, and that included the helpful and the life-giving ones, desires that help us like, figure out what we're good at in life, that maybe even go against like, gender stereotypes. The language of transforming has been particularly weaponized against LGBTQ plus people in the church, right? Just being told that we can transform a part of ourselves that's neither in need of changing or will actually change. So part of all of our spiritual growth is learning like how to not ignore our desires and to treat our life-giving hopes and desires as like good and God-honoring and I want to affirm that and bless that in you. So that's, that's not what I'm talking about when I say that our desires or our will can transform to more closely resemble God's through the work of the Holy Spirit. What I'm talking about is the idea that the Holy Spirit can shape our desires so that we don't act selfishly or in self-preservation when others' dignity or humanity are on the line. I'm gonna say that again. The Holy Spirit can shape our desires so that we don't act selfishly or in self-preservation when others' dignity or humanity are on the line. So I found myself reading a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer again lately. And for those of you who may not know, Bonhoeffer was a theologian and a pastor in Germany before the, and then during the Second World War. And he was one of the very few Christian leaders who vocally spoke out against the policies of the Nazi regime, and that include from its, its really early pre-ruling days in the 1920s all the way up to the time when he was killed in a concentration camp. So this is a man who saw firsthand what happens when Christians en masse acted in self-preservation when others' dignity and humanity and lives were on the line as the German church just folded into the Nazi party. Now, in, in talking about Bonhoeffer, I don't mean to say that our country is in the same position as pre-war Germany. I think we have some significant differences, but there are enough parallels in how much of the American church has succumbed to like a nationalistic fervor right now that I think that it would be wise to hear Bonhoeffer's thoughts on how to avoid similar missteps. So in his writings, Bonhoeffer insists that Christians must be led, taught, and transformed by the Spirit. But that for Christians, the Spirit cannot be divorced from the idea that Jesus, in his human ministry, was a man in whom the Spirit of God dwelled in its fullness. So Bonhoeffer, what he was seeing was an understanding of the Holy Spirit in his time and place had been split off from an understanding of Jesus as the divine manifestation of God's love and care for the poor and the outcast and the oppressed. And he's saying the spirit that animated Jesus caused him to advocate for the marginalized and that that should manifest in us in the same way if we are of that same spirit. So Bonhoeffer reminds us that God is a trinity We often say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I prefer the the terms the source, the wellspring, and the living water. You can call it all sorts of things. This morning I'm going to call it the source, the word, and the spirit, just because that's the way the, the text will read. The source, the word, Jesus, and the spirit. So Bonhoeffer reminds us that these three are inescapably linked in the Christian tradition. So from the very beginning before creation, the fullness of God in all of its parts is present. And the Gospel of John opens like this, and I'm going to use David Bentley Hart's translation. He's a New Testament scholar at Yale in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I thought it might, it's, it's, it's like poetic enough language that if it helps you to close your eyes and sort of picture it, you're welcome to do so, but you don't have to. John writes, in the origin, there was the logos, which just means the word. And the Logos was present with the fullness of God, and the Logos was God. This one was present with the fullness of God in the origin. All things came to be through him, and without him came to be not a single thing that has come to be. In him was life, and this life was the light of humankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not conquer it there came a man sent by God whose name was John the Baptist. This man came and witnessed that he might testify about the light so that through him all might have faith, but only that he might testify about the light. He was not that light. It was the true light that was coming into the cosmos. He was in the cosmos. Through him, the cosmos came to be, and the cosmos didn't recognize him. To as many as who did accept him, to him, to them he gave the power to become God's children, to those having faith in his name and that's the end of the portion of John and I think the lyricism can sometimes be a little bit confusing but essentially John is presenting the logos the second part of the trinity the word as the image of God at the core of all human life it is the universal light that enlightens humankind it's a light available to each and every person which no darkness can quench And so according to John, this word, this logos, it existed long before the creation along with the source and the spirit, right? So the logos existed long before it came and filled Jesus and became a human form in a man, right? Long before it incarnated. Like, are we understanding this? This idea that was whatever it was that came to being in the form of Jesus existed before creation. And in fact, the logos was the idea behind creation. It was its purpose. All things came to be through him, and without him came to be not a single thing that has come to be. And so the gospel of the Logos proclaims that there is a soul light at the core of every human being, the universal image of God, which is both what makes us human and is our connection to our creator. Right, so as Christians, we would say that Jesus, as the human form of the second part of the Trinity, helped reveal to humankind this soul light at the core of every human, what that looks like and what that acts like. Now, it's possible that this logos has revealed itself in other traditions. There's a really great scholar of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Clark Pinnock. He's passed away now, but he was a Canadian evangelical, surprisingly. And he long championed what he called a spirit-oriented theology of interfaith relations. He was probably my favorite theologian of the Holy Spirit. He says, spirit is present everywhere. And God's truth may have penetrated any given religion and culture at some point, And we should be eager to find out. And I mention this as well because we have a couple of indigenous people in our congregation, that there are First Nation theologians that testify to a similar belief among some indigenous tribes in the Native American theology. Um, Clara Sue Kidwell, Homer Noly, George Tink Tinker, he was a great theologian. They explore the idea that Jesus existed as Logos among the ancient peoples long before it became incarnate. And they argue that if the Logos was there in the beginning, then this Word Spirit of God roamed the earth at will, giving revelation to people at different times and places. And he asks the questions, why would this logos, which was so instrumental in the creation act, have lain dormant for so much of human history? Right, so, if this is true, it would mean that the Logos unveiled characteristics of the divine that various people groups still guard and they pass along through their stories and their art and their music and their rituals and other means, and that we can access those stories and we can learn from them if we have discerning eyes and ears. Our own scriptures allude to humans of different backgrounds operating out of this same spirit of love, right? Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. So our humility, right, our Christian humility should allow us to say that there are things that we don't fully understand or know. But in our tradition, speaking as a Christian, we confess Jesus as the Logos, fully divine and fully human. Right? That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. Say Jesus, the Logos, the Word, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Son of Man, all of these terms is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of all things and the objective, the end. Right, so he is the purpose and the end goal of creation. And what happens in that in-between time, between the beginning and the end, is human beings realizing, like waking up to the divine image within, aided by the Holy Spirit so that we become co-creators with God in the redemption and the creation of the beloved community. So that's the invitation of Christianity. We become co-creators with God in the redemption and creation of the beloved community. And the spirit of this God, the same one that's manifest in Jesus, is available to every person, And it breathes on this soul light inside of us and it causes the desires of God to burn away our selfish desires that cause us to act in self-preservation when others' dignity and humanity are on the line. So like Bonhoeffer, I find that I can't talk about the spirit that dwells within us without speaking about the spirit that was alive in Jesus. So Bonhoeffer witnessed what happens when Christians try to understand the Spirit without Jesus and vice versa, because in our tradition, Jesus is our signpost. So our dilemma, I think, in the wider American church today is not that dissimilar to what Bonhoeffer warned of. An understanding of the Holy Spirit has too often been divorced from Jesus of the disinherited, to use Howard Thurman's term. When this happens, faith can easily untether itself from its roots and it morphs into nationalism and empire building, which I think is the process that we are currently seeing in a lot of the American church. But this isn't, our story isn't quite the same as Bonhoeffer's in that certainly we have more friends. This isn't happening in all of the church. We have far more believers and churches that are resisting this pull than Bonhoeffer. But this is how I understand our current environment. So how do we nurture the spirit in a helpful way? Bonhoeffer used the phrase, pray and act. And he advised that when we read the Bible, we pray that the spirit called the advocate will show us how it is showing up in the story, especially through Jesus in the gospels. And that when we pray and interact with the logos in our prayer life, when we're interacting with Jesus and when we're walking and praying or we're praying on our way to work as we're driving in, that we ask this same spirit to help us to discern our helpful desires from the ones that are diminishing the humanity and dignity of others. And he says that when we live our day-to-day lives, that we pray and we ask this same advocating spirit who infused Jesus to show us where it's at work so that we can come alongside and work with it in our classrooms and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and with our friends and with our family. So as an example of what I'm talking about to make it a little more concrete, the way Bonhoeffer would talk about praying and looking for the spirit of the advocate as we're reading through scripture. I'm gonna take a look at a story from um, Luke chapter seven and I've got some sheets, I think, did those get, oh, Steve's got them, so we've got some uh, copies of Luke chapter seven and Pete. I'll give it a minute so that they can pass it out. It's been a while since I preached on this story of Jesus. It's one of my favorites. let say holy spirit advocate show us what you're teaching us Luke 7:36 to 50 When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears And then she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman that she is. She's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had any money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour any any oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus is a guest, right, in Simon's house. And in any culture, there are things that you're expected to do as a good host or a good hostess, especially if that person isn't like close family or friends, right? So in the US here, in our culture, if we invite somebody over, we go to the door and we greet them. Hi, welcome, there's things we say, right? Please come in, may I take your coat? Please sit down, can I get you anything to drink? These are sort of the standard ritual sayings that we have as people come over. And if we don't do even a couple of those things, it communicates a lack of welcome. So if you come to my house, but I don't offer to take your coat, and I sit on my couch and I keep watching TV, you probably feel like you shouldn't stay very long, right? Sending a little signal. Well, Simon and his friends here were being rude to Jesus. So he came to Simon's house, and Simon didn't give him any water for his feet, and he didn't give him a kiss, and he didn't put any oil on his head. It would have been reasonable for Jesus to expect these things. That's what you did when you went to someone's house in his culture, But what actually happened when Jesus came to the house and knocked on the door and stepped inside? We're not told. Was it awkward? Was he met with silence? Were people staring at him? Contempt? Were people kind of just awkwardly ignoring him while they're sitting on their own stools, cleaning off their own feet with water, or having sometimes somebody else would come, a servant would come and clean your feet? So Jesus, he senses something's off, so he goes over to the table, and he reclines so in the near east then as well as parts of the world today you recline on like pillows and cushions that surround usually where the the feast or the the meal was all laid out in the center on the ground and it seems in the story that jesus was reclining prematurely so reclining was usually done after you sat on the stool and cleaned your feet and did all the niceties And he knows that he's not going to receive the usual hospitality. So it's like Jesus is like, fine, I'm just gonna go in and I'm gonna recline because the insult wasn't lost on him. And additionally, the order that you reclined in was also significant, right? So usually the oldest person or at least the most senior by status would recline first, followed by the next most senior on down, right? There was an order, a hierarchy. And you would wait around after um, washing for others to take the lead before you went in to sit. Right? In America today, we don't really have rules like that so much. I think sometimes like, the oldest person in a family might like, sit at the end of a table um, at a big holiday, or maybe if you have a really traditional family. But it doesn't carry the same kind of weight in our culture. But what Jesus does here is he counters Simon's rudeness by asserting his own authority and dignity. Right, so he enters the dining room and he reclines. He's about 30 years old here. It's not likely he was the oldest. It's not likely um, that he was the most senior in this company of religious friends and teachers. And when I was studying the story this week with Bonhoeffer in mind, I found myself asking, okay, what was the spirit of the advocate doing in Jesus here? Right, people were treating him disrespectfully, like he was less than them. But the spirit in Jesus seemed to say, "Yeah." You might treat me this way, but I know I'm not worthy of this contempt, so I'm just gonna go and I'm gonna sit in a way that tells people that I am worthy of honor. I'm worth as much dignity and respect as all of the rest of you, even though you're treating me like I'm not. And I think this is a really powerful move for oppressed peoples, to assert their own dignity. It reminds me of how, um, I spoke a little of this last week when, when Carla and I went to the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries conference I'm not usually one for a lot of like robes and get ups and neither was that group. It was the Pentecostal, mostly black, affirming pastors in that tradition, and they, you know, also preach in jeans often. But man, that last day, they they put on, like the archbishop put on her full regalia, and the bishops put on their full regalia, and all of the pastors who were being ordained did, and they marched in, and what was so powerful about it was that it was people who had been kicked out of most of the other traditions, asserting the dignity and honor that they had been neglected um, or told that they couldn't have in other spaces. So that's what we call subversive rituals or doing something subversively. And that's when it has a lot of power, right? When it's people on the underside of power are doing that. And that's what I feel here and what Jesus is doing. So when the woman with this alabaster jar of perfume comes over and she leans down and she starts to clean Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair, the text says she lived a sinful life in town. So we know, she was a local prostitute. Most likely she'd heard Jesus' message, right? That she was loved by God, that she was welcome in his community, even if she was like the town outcast, and she came there to thank him. But instead of simply giving Jesus perfume as a gift, she finds herself watching this scene unfold in which this kind prophet has been invited to a house only to be insulted, right? So Simon and his friends are mocking Jesus. You think you're respectable, Rabbi? To me, you're nothing. I don't owe you anything, not even common courtesy. And public humiliation causes you to lose face in a lot of parts of Asia, in the Near East, right? It's a shame-based culture that Jesus was in and he would have been meant to feel that shame at this intentional rudeness, right? It was meant to be humiliating. And this woman's response to the meanness is to weep, which is an appropriate response to cruelty, right? She weeps because of the lack of dignity afforded to this man who has embraced the outcasts. And if we read the text closely, it says she was already weeping before she bent down to wipe his feet. Right, it says, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So what it looks like to me is that perhaps she was standing over the place where he's reclining, right? And she's standing over his feet and her tears are running down and they're hitting his feet as she's watching this unfold and her tears are mixing with the dirt on his feet and running down. And so she bends down and she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. And it's a compassionate response to Jesus' vulnerability and his rejection. And I think it's the response of an ally Even though this person, this woman, was even more oppressed than Jesus, she was allying herself to him. You know, the most marginalized people see and understand when, like, any unjust power display is at work. She could see what was happening. And her act was also an act of love and worship for the person who stands up for people like her. Because if Jesus felt excluded in that group, how much more so that woman? And this is what I would talk about as, like, intersectional allyship, if that means anything to you. I won't unpack it too much but the marginalized having compassion on and standing with other people who are also marginalized and being dehumanized. So in Near Eastern and much of Central Asian culture, feet are considered kind of gross, right? Especially in an agrarian society where you're like working in the fields and where you're sharing a dirt road with like livestock and things. And here this woman is kissing Jesus's unwashed feet. It's like, I wanna go get the Purell. (laughs) And she's saying, I don't care how filthy you are. To me, you are beautiful. You've given me everything. You've given me good news that I'm part of the family of God. You've treated me with dignity. When other people despised me, you advocated for me. You gave me hope and love and a purpose when the rest of the world treats me like an object. And letting her hair down here in this situation is a big deal, right? If she were married, doing this in public would be grounds for divorce without a financial settlement. So would touching Jesus. All right, some of the rabbis who were quoted in the Talmud said it was a man's religious duty to divorce such a woman. And a woman's hair in the Near East is still, even today, in both conservative Muslim and Jewish cultures, considered highly sexual. So in the first century, really pious Jewish women didn't even uncover their hair in their own homes. So in traditional Near Eastern society, the first time that a husband would see his wife's hair was on their wedding night. Ken Bailey says, he says, nobody around the room would have missed what the overtones of this woman's gesture were. By unloosening her hair, she's making some kind of ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. And the critical question is will he accept or reject this extraordinary act? So, this is an incredibly sensual and intimate moment between the two of them. And Jesus sees her vulnerability, and he knows that he rejects her after her offering of love and devotion to him, it would devastate her, right? It would be both socially devastating and it would be personally devastating. And Jesus sees that the woman is the only person in the room who empathizes right now with his pain and his rejection by Simon and friends. While nobody else was speaking on Jesus' behalf, this outcast of a woman stood with him and entered into his suffering. And while this is going on, Simon is sitting there judging Jesus. I think I bolded the line where it starts there. If this man was a real prophet, he'd know this woman was a prostitute. He's accusing both Jesus and the woman. He's operating in the spirit of accusation. Verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. This is Jesus. This was pointed in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. It was like saying, let me be blunt. I have something to tell you that you're not gonna like. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Which one had the money to pay him back? So he forgave both the debts. Uh, neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave both of the debts. Which one of them loved him more? In the rabbinic understanding of sin, God would have clearly been the creditor in this parable. Right, so there's Simon. He's in front of Jesus, this woman is kissing his feet and Jesus is talking about two debtors, right? So let's see, who's he talking about? Maybe that one and that one, right? One in front, maybe owes me a little, the other one maybe owes me a lot. The word debtor and the word sinner in Aramaic are the same. So when Jesus said debtor, it would have had like a double entendre. Jesus is insinuating that Simon is just as much a debtor, just as much a sinner as the woman and that he is just as helpless before God, he's just as unable to pay his own debts as she is. Right, so Jesus is challenging Simon's high view of himself by pointing out that Simon is in need of forgiveness himself for his rudeness as a host, and that we, none of us, are better than any of the others. And the other inflammatory thing going on here is that Jesus is insinuating that he is in fact the moneylender, Right, he's equating himself on some level to God. So Jesus took a recognized symbol for God and he pivots it onto himself and it's no wonder people thought that he was a blasphemer. So the creditor, Jesus, forgave both of the debtors. The debtor who was forgiven 500 denarii, the woman, she loves much. Simon, who was forgiven 50 denarii, loves little. Right, and what Jesus is doing here, it's a little pointed, isn't it? He's underscoring Simon's rudeness. Simon, clearly you have little love. And then Jesus asked Simon, now which one of them is going to love the creditor more? In other words, Simon, who loves God more? You or this woman? And you can practically hear Simon scowl. You can see it even in the English. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly, right? As opposed to before. Simon, when you judged incorrectly. And then Jesus asks him, Simon, do you see this woman? Right, Look at her. She's a person. She is making up for your inexcusable failures as a host. You're the problem her, not here, not her. You didn't give me any water. You didn't give me any oil. You didn't give me a kiss. She gave me all of these things. She welcomed me. So what I'm looking for as I'm walking through here is where is the spirit of the advocate also walking and acting in this story? What is it doing through Jesus? And what I see is that the spirit fully realized in Jesus caused him to advocate for the one who was even further down the social line than him. And then to recognize in her the same spirit that was also in him, right? This spirit of the advocate, the spirit of divine light that is in us, it's in the process of recreating reality. so by reaffirming this woman's presence and actions and by accepting her love as worship, Jesus recreated her reality. Right. She was welcomed before God on equal terms with this religious leader. So how do we nurture this spirit so that it transforms us? Bonhoeffer would say we prayerfully study the Jesus of scripture. We prayerfully interact with, the Jesus in pr- with this Jesus in prayer and we pray throughout our day that the spirit will show us how and where Jesus is at work and in every situation and then how we can partner with both the logos, the God of the oppressed and the advocate. Because I think like when you were talking this morning, Jeremiah, I was like, yeah, it's that lack of understanding of Jesus as the ally of the oppressed. And when we divorce that from an understanding of the spirit that's working inside of us, things go awry, and that's what Bonhoeffer saw. And that when we practice um, operating on this level with the advocate in small ways in our daily life, then God will trust us to do so in larger ways. So pray and act is the advice of our, our brother, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I'm getting a lot from these days. So at the end of every sermon, we like to do a couple of minutes of either silent prayer or meditation. I'm going to do something a little different. I'd like to do, I'd like to start with a guided meditation, and then I just want to do a little bit of praying um, with us. So feel free to get comfortable. Participate if you want, don't if you don't want to. Feel free to close your eyes, get comfortable. Let's start by taking just a couple of really deep breaths. Relax our minds. Picture yourself standing somewhere, somewhere that's safe. It can be indoors, outdoors. Just notice your surroundings, what it feels like and looks like and smells like. As you're standing there, someone approaches you. If you identify as Christian, I invite you to picture this person as Jesus. Or if that's not helpful to you, to, to maybe picture God however you understand God, this, this logos, this spirit of love. Where are they standing in relation to you? How do you feel? You notice that there's like an ember of light coming from your body. If you feel comfortable, you can invite this God of love to come forward and to blow onto that ember. In the Hebrew, the words breath and spirit are the same. And the idea is that this same spirit or breath that comes out of Jesus, this God of the oppressed and the marginalized, this spirit that advocates for the outsiders and the oppressed, inextricably linked, and that that spirit can blow into us so Spirit, we invite you to come and to blow, blow into our hearts, awaken us even more. Cause the divine light that is in us as image-bearers of the Most High God, cause that to shine bright. Help it to help it to rid us of our selfishness, our self-interestedness, our self-preservation in times when others' humanity and dignity are on the line. I ask that you would help teach us by your spirit more about Jesus, both the Jesus of scripture as well as the Jesus who is risen and still speaking. I ask that you would show our eyes how the advocate is woven in with this picture of Jesus. And I would ask that you would help empower us to do the work of God in the world around us. In Acts, when the Spirit came into the people, Ken preached about how there was liberation of speech. Lord, that as your Spirit is blowing into this divine light inside of us, that you would liberate us to speak our own truths as well as to advocate for those around us. That in a a day and an age and a time when integrity is important, Lord, that we would be able to follow you faithfully, that we would witness faithfully to who your son is, that as we read about your son in the scriptures, that we would see more and more what his purpose was, that his will and his desires were fully conformed to the desires of God and all of God's fullness. I ask that you would empower us in this way as we're going forth in our week, Lord, as we're going into our schools and into our workplaces, as we're entering conversations, sometimes hard, with family members, with spouses or partners. Lord, that you would help us to honor the humanity of every person and that you would help us discern between what desires are ours and what desires um, we need to lay down because we're acting in our own self-preservation or our own selfishness. I'd ask us that you would help us to mirror the desires of your son, Jesus. In the name of love, I pray Amen. Amen.